0: Screen Time with John Fardy.
1: This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show we take a look at how journalists are portrayed in the movies from The French Dispatch all the way back to All the President's Men. Mark Ryle reviews the new Clint Eastwood movie Cry Macho as well as Netflix's Red Notice. Anton Savage chats about his favorite movie plus your chance to win a staggering a 40-film DVD collection of Clint Eastwood movies. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at Newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. Now, this is a big deal for many of us. Mom? Dad? Uncle Blake, they don't even know I'm here.
2: They don't even know I'm here. My mom and dad have gone to Tokyo. I'm totally on my own. You do realize that my 10-year-old son is at home by himself. You just assumed Max was on the other flight.
0: We didn't take a census. We got reports of suspicious people around 36 Lincoln Ave.
3: I can't go to jail, honey. I wouldn't last 30 seconds in Gen Pop. It's where fresh fish get got. Nobody here is
1: getting got. And we're criminals.
2: I don't think so. This is my house, I have to defend it.
1: Now, that was a clip from Home Sweet Home Alone. Yes, this is the new version, the remake, the reimagining of Home Alone, the much-loved holiday movie, as they call it in the States, the Christmas movie with Macaulay Culkin and all that jazz and Joe Pesci. So this is on Disney Plus from the 12th of November, and it mixes things up slightly. You've a young kid called Max Mercer, played by Archie Yates, the boy from Jojo Rabbit, who's left alone in his house because his parents most notably his mother played by her own Ashling B, go off to Japan without him then Rob Delaney who we know from Catastrophe and Deadpool 2 and all sorts of things and Ellie Kemper play neighbours of his who aren't baddies in the traditional sense they think it's kind of convoluted but they think he stole a doll belonging to them to which they can make lots of money they need lots of money because they're going to have to sell their house so basically they try and steal a doll from his house while he's home alone and you have the same motif I guess where he's stopping them coming in. It's been pretty torn apart by critics which has surprised me because I kind of liked it it wasn't bad, I mean the meat and potatoes of Home Alone is the kid stopping the baddies getting into the house and it has lots of that in it so I really thought it was fine you know, Christmas movies they're a different breed. You kind of suspend the critical part of your brain, I think, when it comes to Christmas movies. Now, this is only half a review because usually when it comes to a Bonafide kids movie, I would watch it with my own children and report to you on how they found it. However, on Thursday night, when I was really excited to watch it with my kids, I was stuck on a train for three hours and 20 minutes. So I was due to be home at eight. I got home at twenty past eleven because of a train failure. So because of that, I'm not able to tell you what my kids thought of it at the time of talking to you. Do I sound annoyed? Yes, I am. Anyway, home sweet home alone. It's on Disney Plus. There's no premier access or any of that stuff. If you have Disney Plus, it's there. I thought it was pretty okay. As I say, a lot of people seem to be hating on it. If you happen to have seen it, do let me know what you might have thought. John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Now, I mentioned at the start, we have a fantastic competition to give away a 40-film DVD box set of the movies of Clint Eastwood ones he starred in and directed everything from Dirty Harry to Any Which Way You Can to Unforgiven, all the way up to Gran Torino and so So it's a great prize. It's to celebrate the release of Cry Macho, which is in cinemas this Friday, which we'll be reviewing shortly in the company of Mark Royal. And also a new documentary series, Clint Eastwood, A Cinematic Legacy, which is on digital platforms and has been from the 5th of November. And that's a nine-parter all about his long, long career making movies, starring in them. So, as I say, we have this box set to give away, which is a great prize. Now, I want to make a hard question, because this is for a Clint fan, okay? So, I have to give you a pretty hard question. So, I was thinking, if you can tell me, in the 1988 movie, Bird, which Clint Eastwood directed, which starred Forrest Whitaker... Who was that movie about? Which legendary saxophone player was that movie about? The movie Bird. Okay. If you know the answer to that, text the word CLINT followed by your answer to 53106. Or you can email us screentime at newstalk.com, particularly if you're listening on the podcast. And the wonderful Anne-Marie will pick a winner of that fantastic prize. So it's a tricky question, but you know, this is for a Clint completist, I would suggest. Now we turn to the week's other new releases and I'm joined now by our resident critic, Mark Ryle, who is going to help me. Well, he's going to do the heavy lifting when we review the new Clint Eastwood movie at the tender age of 91 he has directed and stars in a new movie called Cry Macho. And we're also looking at a new Netflix movie starring Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds and Gail Gadot on Netflix called Red Notice. Mark, hello, good afternoon, good morning. How are you?
3: All of the above, John. I'm well, how are you?
1: Good, you're, you're well in all of those time frames, whether it's morning, evening, afternoon, you're just well.
3: I'm <laughs> generally yeah. well.
1: Good. So listen, we were giving away a monster prize earlier of 40 Clint Eastwood DVDs. This is Clint on screen for the first time in a, in a, in a good while, and I don't want to you know tempt fate, but one imagines he doesn't have a huge amount of movies left that he's going to be no. starring in. What, tell our listeners what's going on in Cry Macho.
3: Okay, so you cry macho, which is something I, I do in front of the mirror every morning. Um, <laughs> it's set in 1979, and Eastwood, is he's a good old boy ranch hand called Mike Milo, and his boss, played by Dwight Yoakam, he guilts Mike into traveling down to Mexico to rescue stroke, kidnap his 12-year-old son from his, his ne'er-do-well ex-wife. Um, But when he gets there, he finds that the kid is a bit of a troublemaker who spends all of his time at the please don't laugh the cockfights with a rooster called Macho. And then as the pair travel back to Texas, inevitable bonds are formed, boxes are ticked and cliches are realised.
1: Yes, okay. More of that in a second. There are lots of jokes to be made about the fact that his cock is named Macho. And at one point, yeah. actually, Clint Eastwood says, you know, if you want to call your cock Macho, that's fine by me. But we're going to move on. We're above that kind of stuff. I'm not even smirking here as I say that to you.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of jokes of, um, about the kid carrying his cock around, et cetera, et cetera. Et, cetera, et cetera. Um, Yeah, as you said, he's 91, and it... it it seems quite likely that that cry macho will if it will probably won't be the last movie that clint eastwood directs but it certainly looks like it, it's the last movie that he will appear in and all i'll say is that it's a shame because it this one is it's far from his best
1: yeah, I don't now, know how you
3: felt about it. Yeah,
1: I saw it as well. I, I have two thoughts on it. I loved seeing Clint Eastwood back in a cowboy hat. I really did. and <laughs> But I thought the plot and and some of the casting and some of the acting was pretty ropey, all things mm. considered. It is, yeah. You kind of forget...
3: So you said that you were giving away 40 of his movies. You forget how many movies that that uh, Clint Eastwood directs. Mm. Um, he, He's still on... At least one if not two movies a year, which is remarkable um uh, the last one that we talked about was the mule that was back in 2018. yeah I mean it's just it's an incredible work rate he has um but yeah this is not this it, it, it's, it's this is not one of this is this is a lesser Eastwood um I, I'd say I think the only part that's been well cast is the rooster. Um, Yeah, the casting is off, and I include Eastwood in that um, because his character would seem to be a good 20 or 30 years younger than Eastwood himself is, and I hate to say this, but he he is just too old for the part, Um, and it's not like the age of the character in this is integral to the story like with uh, Richard Farnsworth in The Straight Story or with Bruce Dern in Nebraska. Um, He is just, he's playing... A part that, that somebody 30 years younger than, than him should probably be playing. And also, and this is truly weird, he really does seem to have an overinflated sense of his own, let's call it animal magnetism, because there are two female characters in Cry Macho and they both want to climb on top of him. Because obviously at 91 years of age, he's, he's irresistible. Um, the mule, which we talked about back at the start of, I think it was 2019, we talked about the mule. He had two threesomes in the mule as well. So this is certainly, it's something, it's it's noteworthy, I think.
1: Yeah. So well, there's a couple of things about it. I mean, I agree with you. He, 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 and I. It sounds ageous to say it, and it's not being ages, but it should have been. His character should have been a sixty-five-year-old who's kind of coming to the end of his working life. Maybe the fact that Clint Eastwood is clearly ninety-one, and hats off to him, you know, if you mm. pardon the pun. But his character did not need to be as old as he was in this, and it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. And I agree with you with the whole women falling at his feet thing women which are clearly a lot younger than him I also and it gives me no joy to say this that the young kid he's rescuing was really poorly cast uh, and it's not nice to say it It, about a young yeah a young up and coming actor but it just seemed like he was I don't know in a school play it was awful at times and I hate to say that but It's, it's it's not yeah go ahead But, and as well, the plot, they took a long time traveling around Mexico. It's just, in my mind, I didn't think it would take them that long if they just kept driving. So I wasn't sure about some of the plotting. But maybe it's, you know, an elegy or something for Clint Eastwood. As I said at the start, it was kind of nice to see him in a cowboy hat riding a horse being a tough guy at times was kind of believable. And also he had this world weariness that I liked, that felt very close to the bone. You know, he's, he's lived a long life, Clint Eastwood, and his character has clearly done the same. And so it wasn't without some merit, I felt. Like I wasn't bored. I kept my eyes on Clint the whole time. That's not to disagree with any of what you said
3: yeah yeah he does he's got a a long line of meditation on masculinity Mm. and i suppose after meditating on it for so long the conclusion he's reached is that this macho thing is overrated yeah which is fine but just to go back to the 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 guy who's playing the kid eduardo minette he he, look he is very obviously out of his depth in this And, and and granted he is young and but he doesn't seem to have an an attitude for for acting yeah. because he's not acting. He's just he's reciting lines. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think it's fair on him to be put in the position of giving him this amount of screen time. Yeah. And I would I would put the the blame for that at the the feet of Eastwood, and um, and it definitely takes away from the overall impact of the piece. Yeah. Because there's this there's and there's there's this bizarre disconnect between how. The kid is described by his mother as some sort of feral hoodlum, and then then this neutered little goody-goody boy scout that shows up—that's quite bewildering. And um, the plot, yeah, it's it's paper thin, mm. which is fine, but it's also kind of nonsensical. It's a it's a movie that's full of characters that say and do things that make no sense, yeah. and there is there's no obvious chemistry between Eastwood and and the the guy who plays the the kid. And this supposed bond between the pair—it's just not convincing. Yeah. And also, the, the like—the only reason that I could see for setting the movie back in 1979 is so Eastwood can take a kind of a shifty attitude towards Mexicans. <laughs> um. I don't know. I, I think it's it's just it's really weak and it's it's kind of aimless mm. and it doesn't really reach a climax. It just sort of putters to a stop. And I was left with the overwhelming impression of, is, is that it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think I go along with all of that. Uh, what would you give it stars-wise?
3: I'm going to give it, I think, a very generous two.
1: Okay, yeah, I'm going to give it a two as well. As I say, it, Clint is always watchable, and he was in this, but I think it was kind of miscast and uh, without much of a plot, unfortunately. So mm. let's take a little clip of Cry Macho. You
0: used to be strong, macho. I used to be a lot of things, but I'm not now.
3: Now, I'll tell you something. This
1: macho thing is overrated. Just people trying to be macho, show that they've got grit. That's about all they end up with. The clip there from Cry Macho, which is in cinemas, I should say, from this Friday. That's the 12th of November. Mark gave it a 2. I gave it a 2 as well. His was a very weak 2. Mine was a slightly stronger 2. But a 2 is a 2 is a 2. So that is Cry Macho. Now, on Netflix from this Friday as well, the 12th of November, is a other movie, a crime caper, called Red Notice, which kind of surprised me. Mark, what's going on in Red Notice?
3: Okay, so uh, Dwayne Johnson is an FBI uh, special agent. Gal Gadot is the world's best art thief. I would say
1: Godot, but you know.
3: It's Gadot.
1: I would say Godot, have... but anyway. Is it definitely well, I think, Gadot? I think, yeah?
3: I think Gal Gadot would say Gadot.
1: <laughs> Fair enough.
3: <laughs> We've had this conversation yeah, we before. we <laughs> have.
1: And I lost.
3: Yeah, well, I'm not. I don't know. Anyway, listen, It's as far as I'm aware, it's Gadot. Fair Um, enough. She's playing the world's best art thief, and then Ryan Reynolds is Ryan Reynolds.
1: (laughs) Also playing (laughs) Um, an art thief.
3: Yeah, Ryan, he's playing the world's second best art thief. And as Red Notice begins, uh, Reynolds has just stolen the movie's MacGuffin, which is a priceless golden egg that once belonged to Cleopatra. Um then Johnson arrests him and retrieves the egg and then Gadot steals the egg from Johnson and sets him up to make it look like he stole it. This is all in the first 10 or 15 minutes. So there's an awful lot of plot going on. But basically uh, Johnson and Reynolds end up in a Russian prison and they have to work together to steal the egg back and to clear uh, Johnson's name.
1: And Gadot, as you call her, and as she calls herself, as everyone else calls her, is on their trail, and also for the whole movie is attempting to get the legendary egg as well. Now I'm going to ask you what you thought about it, because that's why you're here. But I was surprised because I wasn't looking forward to this. And and look, I I think Gail Gadot is is the best of the three. Ryan Reynolds, completely fine actor. Dwayne Johnson, you know he he, he is what he is. So I wasn't. I, I just I thought this sounded hokey and cokey and nonsense. But I found it quite entertaining.
3: You went in with low expectations, and and you were surprised. Yeah, exactly. Totally surprised.
1: Yeah.
3: yeah. Uh, rumor has it that Red Notice um, had a, a production budget of two hundred million, um, yeah. and it, it is it's, it's reportedly it's the most expensive movie that Netflix has, has ever acquired. Now, to put that in context, Denny Villeneuve's Dune from a couple of weeks back. Yeah, that had a production budget of one hundred and sixty million. Wow. So. Apparently this cost 40 million more than Dune.
1: There are and, uh, a lot of locations in it all right.
3: Are there though? <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of title cards with stuff like Bali and Rome and <laughs> Budapest. Are you wondering but, where the money went? No, nah, well, I am wondering where the money went because it's it's hard to see the the action sequences of which there are many. Um, they for my money they look incredibly artificial. Um, and a lot of it looks like a demo reel for a CGI company, if you know what I'm, I'm, I'm getting at. Yeah,
1: I actually liked some of the action sequences. I was surprised. Like, I thought the prison break in particular, which is, it yeah. isn't really a spoiler, an attempted prison break, let's say, I thought was great at the start. Okay.
3: Yeah, yeah, uh, that's yeah. Okay, I'm thinking about the, the the very beginning in the art the art gallery in uh, it's it's Rome, isn't yeah,
1: it? Yeah, that was possibly a little rote. right now, as you say?
3: There's it. a there's a lot of composite shots where you know a couple of different elements are shot separately and then they're superimposed onto a different background, and it's 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 very very obvious when you see it. And I think Red Notice is probably a rare example of a movie that works better on a smaller screen. Mm. Um, the, also on the, the 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 fight the fight sequences. Um, I watched a bit of Strictly Come Dancing last week and it was less choreographed than some of the, the fight scenes in this. Uh, now, having said all that, <laughs> I, th- I think Red Nose is, is entertaining. It's, it's very, very light and it's undemanding viewing. And it did make me laugh um, a few times. Um, so there is that. And there's there's plenty of chemistry between and the, the three big players. Yeah. Um, and it's obvious that they enjoyed the experience. I'm just not entirely sure that my enjoyment was matched
1: was I thought Gail Gadot, Ryan Reynolds and Johnson, they were all very funny at times in a way I wasn't expecting. Uh, There's one particular scene where Dwayne Johnson calls Ryan Reynolds a dickhead that really made me laugh when they're on an airplane. So, uh, yeah, as you said, I had low expectations and I was pleasantly surprised by this. I also, you know, I mentioned all the scenes and you said they were probably just place cards, but I felt... At any stage, you were worried about getting bored. It just, it moved somewhere else very quickly. It was a pleasing mm. crime caper, an escapist crime caper. Uh, my wife agreed as well.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I get exactly where you're coming from. I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's an easy watch. I do think that if, even if you're a fan of Ryan Reynolds, this is probably going to test your mental Do you think? I, I thought he was very funny
1: in it, but yeah,
3: okay. yeah. Oh, he is, he is. But I, I think that the, 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 to go back to Spinal Tap, the, the <laughs> Ryan Reynolds-iness is dialed up to 11. <laughs> How much more Ryan reynolds can Ryan Reynolds be? And the answer is, is none, none more Ryan reynolds
1: <laughs> Yeah, he was utter Ryan Reynolds. You're probably right there. So what would you say stars-wise for Red Notice?
3: Um, I'm going to give it three and a half. I think it's oh. it's undemanding entertainment and it doesn't take itself too seriously.
1: Yeah, very well said. Well, I'm going to give it three and a half as well. So one there of those go. rare weeks where we're in complete agreement. So it's we're kind in concerts. of yeah, very much so. I'm just the piano player. But uh, I, so that's us in concert giving an unexpected three and a half to Red Notice on Netflix from the 12th of November and a disappointing two for Cry Macho by Clint Eastwood in cinemas also from the 12th of November. Mark, we're going to go to Ghostbusters Afterlife next week, so I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, thank you. Thank you, John. Up next, journalists on screen. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now, a few weeks ago, myself and indeed Mark Royal were raving about Wes Anderson's latest movie, The French Dispatch, which is still continuing to do very well at the box office. And that's a movie very much about, I suppose, journalism and people writing for a living. And it just idly one day got me thinking about how journalism often appears on the screen and how Hollywood treats the breed that is. Journalists. So I'm delighted to be joined by cinephile of some note, John Casey, who's kindly thralled through the archive to take a look at how Tinseltown portrays journalists. John, how are you?
2: Good, John. Thanks for having me.
1: My pleasure. Now listen, this is uh, this is right up my alley, so we don't want to spend the next 40 minutes discussing it because we easily could. But your first choice is such a delightful movie that I probably haven't seen since 1987, Broadcast News. Remind people what goes on in Broadcast News.
2: Yeah, it's a James L. Brooks film, so that usually means a nice kind of combination of comedy and drama. So it's Holly Hunter. She's an ambitious producer. She's the kind of the main person involved in it. She works for a Networks News Division in uh, Washington, D.C., and she's someone I've probably met in various guises over the years. She's really driven. Uh, She puts work first. She's very calm under fire, but she generally will have a good cry at her desk every now and again. Uh, So her personal life isn't exactly as full as maybe as her work life. And she's someone who has very exact kind of standards and won't be ignored or dismissed just because she's a young woman in a very tough business. So she works with Albert Brooks, always entertaining. He's excellent. He plays a reporter, very tenacious and likable. But he perhaps lacks maybe visual charisma to make him a prime time kind of star in front of the camera. And then into their lives comes one William Hurt playing Tom Grunick. He's like a regional newscaster. Um, he's not the sharpest. He's not kind of, I suppose, as well read or is it informed as other too? But he has it; he has this kind of relationship with the camera that Brooks doesn't. Uh, he doesn't even necessarily understand all the events he's covering. Yeah, <laughs> like he he's very upfront about that. Uh, but he has essentially a physical appeal and a presence, and I think Hunter Holly Hunter uh, sees all that and knows that he can kind of go far. But at the same time, she kind of fancies the pants off him. But look, right, that that's an aside. Uh, I think the, the real action really heats up when kind of Albert Brooks' character, he understands that this guy is probably more suited to it, but he wants that. He wants that Holy Grail the kind of roll the, the six o'clock news addressing the nation and telling them what's going on. Um, But he also has um uh, an understanding that, look, this guy, William Hurt, he has it in him. He's not a gold-plated kind of journalist. He's not all about integrity. He just has charisma and he has kind of the calmness of mind to deliver lines properly and unflinchingly with his perfectly coiffed blonde hair. Yes. Uh, and in the this camera scene, loves
1: you baby and all the that. Ca-
2: the camera absolutely loves him and he's he's very good with like an earpiece and he just, he has a, I said, a very innate understanding of how to do it whereas Brooks is, he's too tenacious he's kind of blood and guts and he's out in the field and he doesn't have quite the nuance to do in front of the camera so this is a good scene where he kind of lets his, his feelings be known he always says, I suppose kind of an understanding or meeting the minds with Holly uh, Hunter. They came up together and he's just kind of laying it out there, what he really thinks of William Hurst's character. Have a listen.
0: I've never seen you like this with anybody, so don't get me wrong when I tell you that Tom, while being a very nice guy,
1: is the devil. This isn't friendship. You're crazy, you know that?
3: What do you think the devil's going to look like if he's around?
0: God, come on. No one's gonna be taken in by a guy with a long red pointy tail. Come on, what's he gonna sound like? <sighs> no, I'm semi serious here.
3: You're serious? He will be
0: attractive. He'll be nice and helpful. He'll get a job where he influences a great God fearing nation. He'll never do an evil thing. He'll never deliberately hurt a living thing. He'll just bit by little bit lower our standards where they're important. Just a tiny little bit. Just coax along, flash over substance. Just a tiny little bit.
1: That's a clip there from Broadcast News and you heard Holly Hunter and Albert Brooks bemoaning, I guess, who William Hurt is. So, John, I suppose the the takeaway from that movie in terms of, you know, what it's saying about journalism and all is that it's people prioritising work over private lives, really.
2: Yeah, and there is ample opportunity in this film. There's lots of kind of ultimatums and inflection points where someone can declare their love or they can go a little deeper in their personal life, but they, they always just dismiss it. They go, they go to what they feel makes them most comfortable and most accomplished in, and that's their work. And it's it's not cynical. It's nicely handled. It all makes sense. And I think it's probably a more honest portrayal of people in an industry, certainly on the kind of, the, the scale of you know the US and national yeah. news. It's it's all-consuming, and I think it, it does that really well. It's, it's an excellent film. well we're again again.
1: Yeah, no, it is. Absolutely. As I say, I probably haven't seen it in, I don't know, 30 years or something like that. I'm surprised I even remember it, but I do. I remember a lot of it there. So listen, next, let's go way back to Billy Wilder, 1951. This is an incredible movie. Ace in the hole with Kirk Douglas playing, uh, I was going to say a pretty rotten kind of guy, but maybe you'll explain a bit more.
2: Yeah, it's kind of, we're going from kind of clear-eyed journalism to real cynicism on a grand scale. So you have someone like Kirk Douglas, a guy playing, he plays a guy called uh, Chuck Tatum. He's kind of cocky, he's newly sober, he's a newspaper man, he arrives in Albuquerque, and basically he's been sacked from a lot of very kind of highly paid and sought-after gigs in New York, Chicago, and everywhere else. And he just says, look, I'm going to walk in here to this provincial newspaper, the Albuquerque Sun Bulletin, sell them my wares, and if I can kill a bit of time here, Hit a big story, I'll get another uh, chance in the big leagues. But it's quite clear from watching it, as an audience, you know that the kind of the sheer desperation, as opposed to journalistic ambition, is what's going to win out here. And it really feels him at this point in his life. Um, we kind of have a clip here where he's about a year into his tenure in New Mexico, very frustrated, kind of kicking his heels, and uh, he just outlines, kind of outlines, I suppose, his, his desperation really and uh, his determination, and he's just. Given out to, the, to I suppose the the poor hand um what he would call them you know underlings or lesser than uh, employees that uh, peopled this newspaper he works for have a listen.
1: Give me those eight spindly trees in front of Rockefeller Center any day. That's enough outdoors for me. No subways smelling sweet sour.
2: What do you use for noise around here? No beautiful roar from
1: eight million ants, fighting, cursing, loving. No shows, no South Pacific. No chic little dames across a crowded bar. Worst of all, Herbie, no 80th floor to jump from when you feel like it. That's a clip from Ace in the Hole with Kirk Douglas, of course. And I suppose, in a way, it's when we have it in Ireland, it's regional newspapers pitted against, you know, the New York Times or whatever it is. It, it's partially a study of that as well.
2: It is. And I guess the whole thing is if you get a big story in one of those regions, it goes national. Uh, I suppose it puts you under the microscope and it gets, I suppose, those newspapers a chance to show how good they can be, which is kind of what Douglas's character is co- uh, kind of counting on. Uh, He's on his way to a a rattlesnake hunt, which is, you know, very, uh, I was depressed about, but (laughs) en route, uh, he comes across this kind of group of people and police, and essentially this man has become trapped, a local man by the name of Leo, has become trapped after the collapse of a cliff cliff dwelling, so he's essentially trapped in a mountain or down a mine, and uh, nobody can really help him, but as it is, Douglas sees an opportunity to take charge of the situation, he knows that that's like, it's front page news, no matter what happens. Someone gets trapped in a mine, the kind of hours go by, the drama unfolds and he can be doing orchestrating things. So he basically talks to New York editor after a couple of days into hiring him to report exclusively on it. So he's getting a thousand dollars a day. The promise of his kind of big job back. It's, you know, all seemingly going his way. But we know, given the fact that he's directing proceedings, that uh, it's not going to end well. And this man uh, trapped in the mine. Uh, yeah, his his life is essentially in Douglas's hands, which is not yeah. where it needs to be.
1: No, absolutely not. So that I suppose it's kind of journalist is slightly snake oil salesperson in the form of Ace and the Hole. A fantastic movie. We should caveat the fact uh, Kirk Douglas's reputation is somewhat in question. Now it's only been alleged he was up to all sorts of horrible things, and I am aware of that. But I did want to mention that movie because. You know, the jury is out on that as things stand, and Ace in the Hole is a fantastic, fantastic movie. Now, listen, the daddy of them all to me is All the President's Men, but just quickly en route to that, something I suppose a bit lighter is His Girl Friday, again from even earlier, 1940, with Cary Grant playing a journo.
2: Yeah, so Cary Grant, he's kind of uh, an unscrupulous uh, editor. He's with the Morning Post uh, in New York, and essentially he has a a relationship with this woman, Hildy, who works for him. Excellent uh, journalist. They've since broken up. It's all kind of eggshells, and uh, she lets it be known, look, I'm going to move out to the sticks in uh, upstate New York with this rather dull insurance salesman. I'm going to leave journalism behind, even though I love it. And I suppose, alarmed at this, Grant, his feelings come to the fore. And also, he doesn't want to lose what is probably his best staff member. So he comes across the scoop of all scoops, uh, where basically uh, an impending execution and political corruption are all intertwined. And he knows that she will not be able to resist. Uh, the gags come taken fast, given the era, 1940. Uh, so I think it bears repeat viewing. But the chemistry between Grant and, uh, and Rosalind Russell is unbelievable. Uh, I would highly recommend that film.
1: Yeah, you you can rarely go wrong with Cary Grant uh, when he does pretty much anything. I mean, I'll always show up in a movie that he's in. You know, now I mention all the presidents, men like to me that is just. That is the meat and potatoes of journalism, like note-taking and uh, endless calls and fact-checking and all that kind of stuff. You and I, John, both work in radio, so we know that this is how a lot of stuff happens, fact-checking. And the magic of this movie, obviously it's about Watergate and all, is just that they can make... Seemingly boring stuff like phone calls and and fact checking and writing stuff down seems so spine tingling, exciting, and suspenseful. Like it's just a work of genius.
2: Yeah, it's the kind of the hard work, the kind of trudging. Um, it has obviously kind of grand scope, and you know, there's real national consequence there. It does all that beautifully, but as you mentioned, it kind of my theory is that you know, there's a, obviously a trio of films from Alan J. Bakula, uh, the director, Clute, The Parallax View, and then this, the yeah. call so called. Political paranoia trilogy, they're all essentially detective movies. Like we have yeah. Carl Bernstein played by uh, Hoffman, and uh, you have Bob Woodward played by Robert Redford, and they're putting in like what are essentially just hours and hours and nights and mornings and no sleep, just trying to get at the truth. Uh, there's this kind of sense of dread and exhaustion that seeps through the screen as you're watching it as it kind of get deeper and deeper into the relevance of those arrests uh, at the Watergate. Um, I love the way the film opens. It's all, as we're watching it now, archive footage of Nixon kind of triumph, triumphantly returning from uh, his historic visit to China in 72. He's completely oblivious to the fact that just in a couple of weeks, uh, events will just basically transpire to leave his, uh, I suppose his political legacy in ruins. Uh, we watch it as archive footage. It must have been so fresh in the psyche of the American public when the film came out. It was only a few years. So there's this kind of feeling of real anger. It's palpable when you're watching it. Yeah, um, And you mentioned, the, I suppose, the fact-checking and the, all the kind of hard yards and uh, painstaking stuff that goes into cracking a story that big. Um, I think this scene basically illustrates that beautifully. This is Hoffman nearing the end of his tether. He's trying to confirm his sources again and again before resubmitting his and Robert Redford's notes to a Washington Post editor. Very laconic turn from Jason Robards. He's playing playing, uh, Ben Bradley. And uh, this is a desperate uh, Dustin Hoffman on the phone. Have a listen.
1: Yeah, no, this is a brilliant scene where it's just one person on the phone to another, only one of which you see. And it's just brilliant filmmaking. We know it's against the law for you to say anything. If there's some way you could warn us to hold on the story, we'd appreciate it. I'd really like to help you, but I can't. Look, I'm gonna count to 10, all right? If there's any reason we should hold on the story, hang up the phone before I get to 10. If the story's all right, you'll just be on the phone after I get to 10, all right? Hang up, right? That's right. You got it? Yeah. We're straight, all right, I'm gonna start counting, okay? We all right? Yeah. Okay, I'm counting. One, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine,
3: ten. You got it straight,
1: man. That is, of course, a clip from. All the president's men and Dustin Hoffman there trying to get his source confirmed. And he certainly does. And I suppose, John, just just by way of closing out on it, the, the ending of the movie is wonderful because it just kind of ends in a way or, or, or the fruition of it is headlines.
2: Yeah. And again, it's, you can kind of almost feel the the credits kind of starting, the music is kind of swelling up and it's just, there's no huge payoff. There's no perp walk or frantic Mm. TV announcer breaking the news. It's just these really plaintive, hard hitting news headlines as they were in the Washington Post when they came out um, very much uh, showing the decline of nixon's reputation and what they've uncovered it's hugely effective and i just love the structure of the film that they show it was the work that was important not necessarily the showy kind of glitz and like flashing bulbs and uh you know frantic i suppose exchange of information between um you know kind of tv sources it's just two guys alone uh, not getting any help doing a lot of backbreaking labor really
1: yeah, absolutely. And yet it's such a dramatic piece of filmmaking. Listen, time is against us, as it often is, and these things, we need a longer show. But quickly, to take it up to date, or, or slightly more modern, 2014, A Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal.
2: Yeah, a film I think is a very good companion piece, Ace in the Hole, that of these hustling, desperate characters. You have Douglas, obviously, in Ace in the Hole, you have Jake, Gyllenha- Jake Gyllenhaal, devoid of morals from the outset in Nightcrawler. He plays this kind of petty thief, desperate for legitimate work, and uh, I suppose a place in in LA, I suppose to call his own. Uh, he starts recording kind of violent events late at night, and uh, I suppose we call him the a stringer is the, the the term for that kind of job, and then bringing them to uh, TV producers, which they show in the evening news. Uh, he oversteps his mark early. He violates the privacy of a victim uh, with some footage he records, and René Russo's kind of corrupt TV producer just pats him on the head and basically says, look, the bar for morality in this town is set extremely low and uh, he, he, he absolutely flourishes in that environment I'll say one thing, when you watch those kind of films and you see someone coming from nowhere and learning the ropes and getting better, there's a sense of kind of vicarious satisfaction that is completely absent here, I mm. do not want him to succeed on any level, any form of success he does achieve is empty and hugely questionable in its motivation, uh, it's a film that always left me with a very sour taste in my mouth it's a beautifully made film It's something that is very niche and it's a kind of subculture going on but uh, it's not necessarily what I would call a date film. Yeah, that's no, my God.
1: <laughs> it's certainly not. But Hall is immense in it. Listen, you want to finish with Between the Lines. En route to that, I'm, this is your take. I'm going to quickly mention The Paper with Michael Keaton and Glenn Close. A lovely movie from the 90s about the business of trying to get a newspaper to print every day. I know you're not necessarily a huge fan of it. It's kind of a cult favourite among a lot of people. But anyway... Just closing out there, John, I didn't even give you time to answer back to that because I know what your response would be. (laughs) But tell me, between the lines, I haven't seen this.
2: It's very much a forgotten gem. It's Joan, uh, Micklin Silver directing. It's all very much idealism and kind of beautiful exuberance. It's set in the late 70s at the time. It's a a kind of an alternate newspaper, uh, the Back Bay mainline. Uh, People like John Hurden there, he plays a kind of an archetypal smart arse who peaked too early and now can't be bothered to put the work in. Jeff Goldblum in an early turn, uh, he's a magnetic presence on screen. He plays a work-shy music critic. You have people like Lindsay Krauss, who is hugely underrated. Uh, the morals are played kind of simple enough. It's like big, bad businessman, and they want to expose those shady dealings. Um, you also have a, a big fish coming in to buy the paper up and gut it. So it's very straightforward, but it's just a lot of really talented actors at the, at the onset of their career putting in uh, excellent performances left and right, Between the Lines, 1977. I would highly recommend it. Uh, It's very enjoyable. I think you'll find maybe the Criterion Collection. You might even get a a sneaky freebie on YouTube as well. Okay, uh,
1: we're all about the sneaky freebies. That was John Casey doing a marvellous trawl through, I guess, his selection of how journalists and journalism has appeared in Hollywood over the years, all the way back to the 1940s, up to pretty much the present day. John, that was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. Up next, Anton Savage on his favourite movie. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well known about their favourite movie My next guest has been a broadcaster I've admired for a long time and recently he became a colleague of mine I'm delighted to welcome Anton Savage to the show to talk about his favourite movie Hello Anton Hello
0: John Check is in the post for that introduction Thank you very much (laughs) This is my
1: favourite slot in the show despite anyone else I might talk to in terms of Hollywood big shots because it's like that Forrest Gump thing you never know what people are going to choose and people who are genuinely into their movies movies really surprised me with their choices.'re just the most outlandish things. and in a month of Sundays, I never would have guessed that this was your favorite movie.
0: This is like years ago. My, my dad used to be a, a, a broadcaster and he somebody came up to him in the street once and he, he was a six foot tall ex-GA yeah. uh, intercounty player and said, you're not like I expected you to be on the on, in person. He said, what do you expect? A short man with a moustache. <laughs> and it stayed with him for years. Why did you think, what did you think I'd be into, John? Is the anything for me? I, th- I don't
1: know, but let's, let's, let's <laughs> park <laughs> go. that one. So will you tell our listeners?
0: Why Field of Dreams? Okay. Feel,
1: so Field of Dreams.
0: Field of Dreams is one of those movies which is, it is inexplicable and unparalleled pitchable. I don't know how it got made because when you try to say here is the plot the plot essentially, without giving spoilers, although it is a 30 something year old movie so, but you have a man who is an Iowa corn farmer who is edging towards being on his uppers who had a difficult relationship with his father. He hears a voice which tells him to plough some of his corn into the ground and build a baseball diamond. He does this and this leads to an hour of ghosts visions, time travel, and supernatural deus ex machina solutions to his financial problems. Mm. This all sounds ridiculous. The reason I love it is because in amongst what should be entirely ridiculous, it deals with those big, huge, soaring themes in a way that literally every time makes me cry.
1: Wow. Okay. Every time. Now, there's a couple of things about it. Kevin Costner, how, how do you find him in it? Because like, I don't know what I think of Kevin Costner. Sometimes I think he's doing a, a poor man's Jimmy Stewart, oh shucks or whatever. And then other times I think he's amazing. You clearly love him in this movie though, right? Yes,
0: but I think every now and then there is a role that is very well cast. Mm-hmm. What is required of Ray, the yeah. lead character, is to be quiet, reserved, conservative, unexpressive, suppressing of all of his emotions and relatively limited in expression. Mm. Kevin Costner does that very well. I suspect (laughs) Kevin Costner does that naturally very well. So there is an alignment between the man's capability and the character that he has to deliver. But in this, yeah, he's brilliant. And it is a, a quiet, reserved performance. And it's a very good performance.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, there's a couple of other things. Build it and they will come. I think I use that phrase every other week in an email to someone or so. And I think in a way that gets the magic of what you're saying in the movie because it could be hokey, corny nonsense. But yet phrases like that in it do make it splendiferously wonderful.
0: They do. And one it's one of those where a tiny variation on the theme, because again, a spoiler alert to this one, but a tiny variation on the theme can pull at such an emotional heartstring because the theme all the way through is build it and they will come. In other words, build the baseball diamond. And the they, the ghosts of of people gone... The those who need their pain healed and mm. the spectators who will pay the fees to make your... car. So that's the recurring theme all the way through. But the last time it is used, it is converted into build it and he will come, yeah. which is the reference to Ray's father who died without them ever having a rapprochement And this is his chance to see his dad again and to reconnect with him. Ah.
1: Yeah. He's close to the edge here, (laughs) folks. So does it, in terms of, and I don't want to bring you down any further, but in terms of you welling up around it, is it throughout the whole thing or at particular pinch points in it?
0: It's at particular pinch points. There's, there are, there are moments where, and this is what I mean by, it it, it is literally like a fairy tale. It deals mm. with big themes in, in, in an almost overblown way. But one of them is personal sacrifice, giving up y- your own dreams yes. for, the, for altruism and actually gaining more from so doing. And there's a scene in which that, that choice is given to one of the, the characters who not only has already given up his dreams, he's now got a choice to relive them. And he makes that sacrifice to save a little girl who is hurt. Yeah. And the moment when he does it is deeply sad. Likewise, the moment when the baseball players appear to just play a game—that's yeah. all they come to do—is yeah. to just be happy yeah. together in an Iowa cornfield. And then the final moment with the playing catch with his dad. Yeah.
1: No, oh, I tell you, we're going to have a man hug if this keeps on. <laughs> tell me though, we also have to mention James Earl Jones because he's he plays this And Burt compli- Lancaster, yes, we have to get him, but sorry, yes, James Bert Earl Jones, well. of course. And it's too complex, or not. It, we don't have enough time to get into what he does, but basically he plays a former 60s revolutionary and he's just brilliant at the start as this cranky guy who's like, leave me alone I'm not Bob Dylan, he's brilliant in
0: it He plays a character called Terence Mann and Terence Mann is deeply significant in it because Terence Mann is the reason that the lead character Ray, played by Kevin Costner, falls out with his father because he reads a Terence Mann book back in the late 60s, early 70s, which changes his view on American society and yeah. causes a rift with the dad. Ray, through a long series of events, ends up meeting Terrance Mann and, and the James Earl Jones' character provides both catalyst to the latter half of the movie, but it also pierces some of the schlockiness Mm. because he does react by saying, you are clearly insane, leave me alone. And, And it takes that cloying sentimentality out of it. But that's the thing that I think, I suspect American audiences get an extra layer out of this movie. Because it does address that late 60s, early 70s radicalism and the change in conservative Midwestern American society, Mm -hmm. which we actually probably thought went further than recent events have showed us it did. But it it deals with that and it deals with baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Like baseball. Like it has
1: everything it, a yank wants, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like somebody took the Civil War, the Treaty, and the <laughs> ga and placed it in what was already a fairy tale.
1: That's what they should have put in the poster. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's a lot of stuff happening. Yeah. But yeah, he is absolutely brilliant in it. And Burt Lancaster is, is brilliant. Yeah, I had in
1: actually it. forgotten Burt Lancaster was in it.
0: Yeah. And that's that's the great tribute to Burt Lancaster. He, he was such a significant star who disappears into the role of Midnight, of oh, something oh, it's going to annoy me now that I can't remember his character name, but his character name was actually based on a real character. Okay. This was a a real character who back in 1906, a guy who had had one at bat in the major leagues. He got to stand on home plate once. And then he went to be a rural doctor. And they actually took the story of him, built it into the character. And Bert Lancaster's brilliant in it.
1: Well, mission accomplished because... I, and I'm sure listeners, really feel like watching that movie again based on your wonderful description of it. So thank you for that. Let me ask you two things movie-related. Have you ever acted?
0: Yes, I was in a road safety video in 1984 <laughs> in which, and I'm not making this up, I rapped.
1: Oh, dear. Uh, this was in school? or?
0: I was in school. The road safety video was done for, I think, the National Safety Council or one of those at the time. They needed a, a youth yeah. To uh, be the voice of the youths who were taking risks on the roads. <laughs> and I did that and I had to do a rap. And not only did I do a rap to MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This. Oh,
1: God. Uh-huh.
0: Is this on YouTube? God, I hope not. <laughs> but they then discovered that they couldn't get the license to the music. Yeah. So they had to use a different backing track that didn't match the beat of what I had rapped. So I rapped offbeat. To MC Hammers, you can't touch. Just reworded about road safety.
1: Can you remember the rap? Oh right?
0: God, no! Oh <laughs> God, no! Oh no, no!
1: Wow. Okay. Wow. You contain multitudes. And then finally, what's this about you and Russell Crowe? Was it just one drunken night, or are you best friends? <laughs> or what's going on?
0: The the me and Russell Crowe thing is is Russell Crowe has occasionally said nice things about me on Twitter. Where this came from was he was out promoting a movie called The Water Diviner. You know, oh, the yeah. Water Diviner, yeah, yeah, which yeah. was a passion project for his. Yes. And it was about the Anzac troops in Gallipoli, which is, a, 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 a on this side of the world, a largely forgotten fight in the Second World mm-hmm. War, but the or in the First World War, rather. But the suffering involved from the uh, troops in that battle was horrendous. And it's about a father who was trying to find the body of his son, because there was a huge yeah. r- amount of, of that. He was in uh, Ireland. I interviewed him. We got on relatively well in the interview. He asked me to go to his gig because he was singing in the Olympia. I went and one thing led to another.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I actually have a voicemail from him on my phone that I take out at dinner parties for he was on some movie thing uh, he was doing promo in the station and he was ringing to get someone else but he had my number and it's just 30 seconds saying hi John I'm looking for mm, 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 tell him to call me back but I, I play it sometimes oh, but
0: it's, like, funny, it's he funny, does, funny He I had the same thing I was on air at one stage and somebody came into the room and went Russell Crowe is online too <laughs> and I was like surely you have people but no, he just rings up and goes, Russell
1: here yeah amazing. no I know he seems very to roar like that yeah. well anyway his favourite movie is Field of Dreams he is a dormant rapper we may see him again <laughs> Anton Savage thank you very much thank you John
2: Ray, when the bank opens in the morning,
0: they'll foreclose. People will come, Ray. You're broke, Ray. You sell now or you lose everything. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has ruled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again.
1: Oh yes, the declamatory sounds of James Earl Jones there, from Field of Dreams, as chosen by Anton Savage as his favourite movie. And my thanks to Anton. That is it for this week. I'll just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on News Talk if you want to get in touch with me at any stage John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentimeatnewstalk.com Busy show next week I'm talking to Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst amongst others so tune in for that enjoy the rest of your weekend and have a good week ahead and I'll talk to you all next week